Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and we search the internet for interesting books, and when we find a really interesting one, like we found today, uh, we interview the author, and today we'll be talking with Edward Skidelsky about his book, How Much is Enough? Money and the Good Life. Uh, Edward, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Marshall. Um, Perhaps you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm an I'm a academic philosopher at the University of Exeter in the west of England. Um, I've uh, been here about four years. Before that, I've worked variously as a journalist for NGOs, for publishing companies. Um, so I have a foot in the world of both academia and journalism. Uh, I'm a moral philosopher, uh, primarily, I'm particularly interested in ancient philosophy, uh, and I try and apply some ideas from ancient philosophy to, to the modern world. Mm-hmm. Well, you've done that in this book. As I know, people who've read it know that. Um, how did you come to write uh, How Much is Enough, Money, and the Good Life? Well, it's, I, I should say it's a, it's, it's a joint authored book. Um, I wrote it together with my father, Robert Skidelsky, who's a, a, a historian um, and economist, um, a great expert on John Maynard Keynes, and I suppose there was a sort of convergence of interests. Um, my dad was um, sparked off by a little essay written by Keynes called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. Um, this was a, a, a little thing he wrote in 1929, um, speculating about economic prospects in 100 years' time. Um, I got interested in the subject really through looking at Aristotle and what Aristotle has to say about money. And we realized there was a lot of overlap. Um, And then, of course, there was the economic um, crash of 2008, which kind of got everyone thinking about money. So all these things came together and um, we decided to write the book. It was actually my father who proposed it to me and came up with the title, How Much Is Enough? (laughs) And a good title Um, it is. Well, we we thought of the title before we thought of the book. It was a a title looking for a book. (laughs) That's that's excellent. usually happens the other way around, I can tell you from experience. Um, So before we go on to talk about the book, you just mentioned that you did a little study or some research on what Aristotle says about money. What does Aristotle say about money? I didn't know Aristotle said anything about money. Well, he makes, um, I mean, a very simple and obvious point, um, uh, which many other people have made, um, which is that you know, money is basically a, a tool for, for, for getting things you want. It's not of any value in itself. I mean, you know, you can't, you can't eat it, you can't drink it. Um, and he, you know, he tells the story of uh, King Midas to make this uh, point clear. You know, King Midas mm-hmm. uh, was granted the power to turn anything he wanted into gold. And he thought this was great. You know, he went around to stuff into gold and then after a while he realized that uh, you know whenever he put any food to his mouth it turned to gold so he was uh, on the brink of starving to death <laughs> so so money is basically an instrument it's for something um and then the question is well what, what's it for um 
And the answer that Aristotle gives is it's to enable you to lead a good life, um, to provide the material conditions for living well. Um, of course, money itself can't give you a good life. You need you know, to have certain qualities of character as well. But you also need certain material prerequisites. Um, and that's, that you know, is basically the idea behind our book, that you know, money is a, a means to an end. The end is the good life. Um, and now in the Western world, we have enough collectively to, to lead a good life. So it's silly to go on striving for more. That's mm-hmm. kind of madness. Mm-hmm. I didn't know Midas was from Aristotle or was in Aristotle. Uh, yeah, I'm not really an Aristotle scholar, so it doesn't surprise me. I don't know that. So let's talk about uh, Keynes a little bit. Keynes, uh, very popular on this side of the Atlantic among some people. Uh, in this particular essay, though, you uh, say he was wrong about something. So could you talk a little bit about that essay and how he was wrong? Yeah, well, Keynes, um, um, uh, he, he asked, what, what, what are the economic prospects for our grandchildren? Uh, so the people will be living in 100 years hence, i.e. about 2030. And he makes two predictions, um, one about incomes, the other about working hours. Uh, about incomes, he says, we'll be roughly four to eight times as rich as we are now. And that has turned out to be strikingly accurate. We're almost four times as rich. So presumably by 2030, we'll be slightly over four times as rich. So, you know, within within the uh, limits of his estimate. Um, but he then draws the conclusion that um, we'll... Um, you know, once we reach this stage, we will have enough to satisfy all our material wants. And so we'll, um, we'll stop working, basically, or we'll start working much less. He reckons only three hours a day or 15 hours a week, enough to satisfy the old Adam in us, he says. Uh, now, that clearly has not happened and doesn't look likely to happen in the next 20 years. Um, Europeans work on average about 40 hours a week, Americans slightly more, so nowhere near 15 hours a week. Uh, and it's not going down either. It's, in fact, it may be going up slightly. Uh, so the question we asked ourselves is, you know, what, why did Keynes you know, get, it, get it so right about incomes, yet so wrong about working hours? Um, and we suggest a number of um, possible reasons for this. Um, the basic one, I suppose, is, is that he misunderstood the nature of human wants, he thought that humans have a, a finite number of wants um, uh, and that once those wants are you know, fully satisfied, they'll have enough and they'll stop working. Um, but what's now become clear is that human wants are infinitely expandable because they're relative. We want things uh, not just because we need them in some absolute sense, but because, because other people have them or other people don't have them. So we're always comparing ourselves with others. Um, and of course, this process is um, greatly encouraged by by producers who are always trying to create new markets for their products. Um, it's not just a natural process; it's one that's um, you know encouraged by the by the by the logic of capitalism. Um, uh, so, you know, we're we're we um, you know, despite the fact that we, we now have enough to lead you know um, a good life, we 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 uh, we continually. St- drive after more and more, and that means we have to keep on working hard. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and of course, you know, this, this um, you know, ties together with Aristotle, not, not, not entirely coincidentally, because Keynes, of course, knew his Aristotle and was very influenced by him. Uh, so that's, um, that's the, the, the convergence between the two strands of thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have to talk a little bit about why we continue to work so much. I, this actually occurred to me when I was about 18 years old. I really did. I, I walked to my parents and people that I knew working all the time, and I knew how much money they had relative to me, and it was a lot more. And I, I actually remember asking my mother when she was a teacher, high school teacher, junior high school teacher, I said, if you would just give me as much money as you make in three days, I could live for a month. And she's like, but I'm not going to give you that money. <laughs> so why, you know, there are lots of reasons why, why we, um, in the hierarchy of uh, I think economists call this the the uh, hierarchy of preferences. That timed, uh, empty time—that is, free time—does not seem to rank very high. Why is that? Yeah, that, that's a, it's a very interesting question. Um, um, and this was this was the question asked by um, a Swedish economist called Stefan Linder in the 1970s. He wrote a book called *The Harried Leisure Class*, 
asking, um, you know, why it is that, uh, yeah, basically Keynes's prophecy hadn't come true. Um, and he, he, he proposed an interesting answer, which is um, that um, free time is actually costly time. It costs money, i.e. the money that you could have made uh, while working, um, if you had been working. So, you know, every, every sort of hour I spend, you know, lying on the beach, I could have made um, whatever, 50 pounds. Um, mm-hmm. So it's expensive. And of course, the cost goes up the more you earn. Um, so the, you know, the, the higher your salary, the, the, the more it costs you not to work. Um, and, and that means that in order to make it worthwhile not to work, you have to make leisure as, um, you know, uh, uh, as full of utility as, as, as the work you've lost would have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means you have to sort of pack it with um, gadgets, basically. Yeah, so it's not enough just to lie on the beach. You have to, you know, go scuba diving or, you know, um, whatever, you know, and that costs money. And that, of course, means that you have to work. Um, so, so we're kind of trapped um, in this sort of work consumption treadmill. Um, uh, and yeah, and, and this, this actually, this point was made by one of the critics of our books, um, Richard Posner, uh, writing for the uh, uh, New York Times. He said... Um, yeah, if, if if the Skidelsky's proposals were were realised, um, if we all worked only three hours a day, we'd have all this leisure time, but um, we wouldn't know what to do with it because we'd all be really poor. You know, we wouldn't have the money to afford all these you know cool things that we need to to make good use of our leisure time. Mm-hmm. So we just um, you know we just sit around getting drunk or fighting or sleeping. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, now, I just think this portrays a really pessimistic view of human nature mm-hmm. i think um actually if, if we if we did have that much leisure time we'd we'd find ways of making creative use of it um the way we use our leisure at the moment is not a good indication of how we'd use it if we had much more leisure mm-hmm. um because at the moment basically people only have a few hours of leisure each day after work and they're too tired to do anything so they just uh, flop out in front of the tv or uh, but if we had a lot more leisure, um, I have no doubt that we'd yeah, find ways of making creative use of it that didn't involve a lot of money. Um, yeah. Reading, for instance, um, that's pretty cheap. Um, games, making music, amateur theatricals. Um, if you, you know, read the novels of Jane Austen, you find her characters are always doing things like this. Um, and, uh, and now those kind of things will be affordable to most people, mm-hmm. even if they only work three hours a day. So... I, I'm, I'm more optimistic than Posner. Yeah, I can think of one class of people who definitely have an extraordinarily high preference for leisure time and are willing to sacrifice almost everything for it, and that is drug addicts. <laughs> I, by another connection, I know some of them. I'm sort of involved in uh, helping people who are addicted to various substances, and those people will not work. They will do drugs instead and, until they have no money. Yeah, And then they will basically go to work to get more money for drugs, but um, I don't think that's probably a very good case. That's, that's, that's not a good model. <laughs> no, not, that's not a good model at all. I, I, think, I, mean, I mean, I think it's main, mainly the case that, you know, people lose their jobs and then become drug addicts. Um, yeah. So the drugs fill, fill the empty space. Um, mm-hmm. Well, that's an interesting, that's an interesting question for another show. I, I don't, I can't agree with you there because I, but it, but it is an interesting topic why people um, become addicted to substances like this. But, uh, let's go back to the question of why we don't prefer leisure time. One, it seems obvious reason to me, is that people really enjoy their work. Well, yeah, we, we looked into this. If, so if you, was, let me just say, if you ask Americans, and I don't remember the statistics, but if you ask Americans if they're satisfied, and it all depends on, of course, how you ask the question, but if they like their work or they're satisfied by their work, something like 90% of Americans say yes. Well, yes. I, I mean, I, I, I mean, but... Of course, I think particularly in America, there are there are strong incentives to say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people don't want to seem like losers. Um, so we, I, I'm, I'm we not smile sure how, we, we smile how, how liable those statistics are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but even, I mean, even if it's true that people um, you know like their work, it doesn't mean that they want to work as many hours as they do. I mean, I mean we're not proposing you know the complete abolition of work by any means. Um, I mean, I think work is a source of meaning for many people, but they could get that meaning working much less. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 
three, four, five hours a day. Um, you don't have to work eight or nine hours a day to get that, mm-hmm. to get that sense of meaning from your job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I quite agree with you there. And I always think about these boundary cases, these sort of extreme cases. So drug addicts are on one end of the scale. They don't want to work at all. They just want to do drugs all the time. Then on the other end of the scale are these people that make millions and millions and millions of dollars. And I always think to myself, I put on my economist hat, and I'm like, what is the marginal utility of another million dollars to somebody who has $500 million? It's zero. I mean, it's functionally zero. Yeah. It, it can't add well, anything. But, to but of life. course, it's, com- it's comparative. I mean, they're, they're you know, comparing themselves with other people who are earning similar sums. So, um, yeah, although in itself it's, it's zero, it's, uh, uh, I think, it, was it, um, who was it who said m- money, um, uh, money is just a way of keeping score? Um, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, I think I think you know once once you get to the sort of top end that that becomes pretty important. I mean, I mean I often think you know when I when I think about this in my own life, uh, I, I in your scenario would be very happy with the, um, the 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 six conditions upon which one could live the good life. I, but I am a kind of a bookish person that likes the you know I also like sports and I, I can free my I I, I can uh, occupy my my free time very easily with things that do not involve making money. But I think it's peculiar to scholars. Don't you, do you think that's true? I mean, I, I know a lot of people that would just well, quit their teaching. Well, I, I think it was, it was. I mean, you know, a hundred years ago, it was. You know, the the assumption was if you if you made a bit of money, you stopped working. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what rich people did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, perhaps perhaps not so much in America, but certainly in England and in Europe. Um, yeah, you know, once you made enough to live as a gentleman, as the phrase went. You, you 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 did precisely that. You you bought a house in the country. You went hunting. Uh, yeah, maybe you spent a day in the office just to sort of manage your estate. But but basically, you stopped working. Um, and I think you know Keynes assumed that that would be the pattern for most people in the future, as they you know as we all became richer, we'd all start living like gentlemen. So I, I, um, I mean, I think that I think the work ethic has been kind of instilled into us mm-hmm. uh, by capitalism. I don't think it's natural. Yeah, no, I, it, it starts very early too, and I, I think in order to realize some of the um, some of the plans that you lay out in the book, it would have to start very early because you know I you know I have young kids and I'm already teaching them about money and I'm already saying to them if you want to play video games you have to buy them and, and to buy them you have to have a job and um, my son is very acquisitive uh, he 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 wants many toys he doesn't want one mm-hmm. toy and he goes to the store and he sees all the toys and I don't really know. He's bombarded with images of of, of wealth, yeah. and, he, and he equates, and this is the kind of interest that gets right to the crux of it, and it gets to a chapter in your book, he equates more stuff with happiness. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, well, about children, first of all. I mean, I, I think that's true. A lot of, a lot of advertising is, um, you know, subliminally directed at children now. Um, uh, and, I think, you know, I think one, um, in, in, in Sweden, I think it is, there, there's a ban on advertising that's, directed at children which i think is a very good idea and um you know we'd like to see that extended um about happiness yeah i mean we um you know a lot of uh, critics of growth appeal to the notion of happiness uh they point out that, that even as gdp has gone up um in most western countries happiness has remained flat uh uh and they draw the obvious conclusion that you know we should um you know, we should you know stop trying to expand GDP and start thinking about uh, GDH, gross domestic happiness, mm-hmm. instead. Um, now, I mean, we're sympathetic with the with the conclusion, obviously, but we think the argument is is a bad one um, for two reasons, really. First of all, we think um, that it doesn't make much sense to measure happiness. There are all kinds of uh, methodological problems with the way these happiness surveys are constructed. Um, which we can talk about if you like. But I suppose the more fundamental problem is that we don't think happiness is good in and of itself um, because it all depends on what you're happy about. I mean, happiness is a, yes, what, it's what philosophers call a, uh, an intentional attitude. I mean, you're, you're not just happy, you're happy about mm-hmm. something or other. And the value of your happiness depends very much on what you're happy about. So, yeah, there are some things that it's best not to be happy about, um, uh, and you know, in some situations, it's better to be unhappy. Mm-hmm. I think if you're, you know, in a in a war zone or in a situation of great injustice or oppression, it's uh, you shouldn't be happy. You should be angry, outraged. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, to make happiness, you know, in and of itself, independent of its objects, the goal of economic policy is is really a 
that's a recipe for for brave new world. Um, uh, no, so we, we don't appeal to happiness. Yeah, actually, I would like to talk a little bit about those uh, happiness surveys. One reason, well, there are two reasons. One is that I've always been incredibly skeptical of them, like you, and the other is that uh, they're extraordinarily popular in American academic circles now. There's like mm. happiness studies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's really like people are yeah, building huge careers on this measuring happiness thing. Could you talk a little bit about the what you perceive as the problems with these these surveys? Well, I think, I think there are all kinds of problems, um, um, which which we discuss in the book. Um, uh, I suppose, I mean, one is I, I, I mean, you know, a lot of happiness surveys, you know, use scales one to five, one to ten, um, and but it's never explained to participants what these numbers mean. Um, you know, is this uh, is this meant to be um, uh, uh, an average? Um, you know, does, does five represent average happiness? Um, if so, what you know, what, what's the population? Are you are you comparing yourself to people in your own country or in the world? Mm-hmm. Um, or is this meant to be some sort of absolute scale? Uh, um, if so, what are the what do the boundaries represent? You know, it's tens of you know, total bliss, whatever that is. I, you know, so I mean, I, I just wouldn't know what to say if I was asked how, how happy are you on a scale of one to ten. I, I just it's, it's, a, it's a meaningless question. Um, so that's one problem. Um, then there's um, a problem of translation. If you're comparing happiness between countries, um, you know, you've got to make sure that the, that the words you use mean the same thing. Um, but in fact, they don't. Uh, happiness doesn't have exact synonyms in other languages. Um, uh, um, I think um, I mean, happiness is generally a, a lighter term. It's one that you know we use, you know, English speakers use quite readily. Whereas um, yeah, the Russian word shastye, for instance, which mm-hmm. is is a much is a much more serious term. I mean, you you know you you wouldn't say that you you were shastye unless you know you really you really were. Um, you know, which is perhaps the reason that Russians don't come out so well in these surveys. I, I mean, um, so that's another problem. Um, there's the problem of, you know, can you, you know, are people reliable judges of their own happiness? Um, I'm not sure they are. I think, um, you know, there are all kinds of pressures on us to, to pretend to be happier than we really are, uh, perhaps even to think that we're happier than we really are. Um, or in other countries to pretend to be less happy than we are um, because, you know, you don't want to tempt the gods. Um, so, um, so I, I, you know, I, I just, I just, um, I think it's a kind of pseudoscience actually uh, measuring happiness. I mean, I quite agree with you there. I, I've never really understood exactly what they're after here because I know when I look into my own heart, I guess I would say by metaphor and say, how happy are you? I ask the same questions that you ask relative to whom, you know, to the guy that just lost his leg, well, probably more, you know, to the guy who, you know, um, you know, just on the team that won the World Cup, probably less, uh, you know, what, what's the metric here? I mean, can I count it? Or, you know, is it, does it, when I just wake up, I tend to be happier than midday when I'm, you know, don't feel very good because I'm tired. I, it's a, it's a very elusive thing. And then, you know, having spent time abroad, I can also tell you that the way you say about, particularly Russians, because I've spent a lot of time there, it's, you're mm. definitely right about that. Uh, they, it's just not one of these things that can be easily translated. Um, so what do we measure if we, if we have to measure anything, can we measure anything in terms of like well-being or contentment or spiritual fitness or what do you call it? Is there anything we can? Yeah. Well, I think, I don't think we can measure these things directly. Um, because, um, yeah, they're, they're just not, you know, they're qualities, they're not quantities. Um, uh, but I think, I mean, you can measure things, you know, that are correlated with them or um, you know, proxies. So, so you know, for instance, if you're if you're interested in health, you can you can um, yeah you can look at life expectancy, uh, obesity, alcoholism, incidences of you know disease. Um, uh, and these you know these figures tell you something. Um, um, uh, I mean, even even with health, I think it's it's difficult because. Um, uh, you know, you've got to make judgments about quality of life as well. I don't think life expectancy on its own is a particularly good measure because, you know, you can keep people alive for a long time in a, in a state of um, really debilitating sickness. So um, so you're always going to have to, you know, uh, make a judgment. Um, but, yeah, you know, statistics are useful. I mean, I, we, we're not dismissing statistics. Um, 
uh, we're just saying they have to be handled with care. Um, and, we, and we don't think there's some general measure of well-being. Um, we don't think you can, um, you know, aggregate all these statistics and come up with a sort of universal metric. Um, we think that would be a mistake. Mm-hmm. And so you just have to take them all individually and then and then sort of, you know, decide which one you think is more important. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that's what uh, you know, that's what politics is all about. Right. So that, but that's bad news for um, both happiness studies and for um, gross domestic happiness. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. Uh, it's uh, you know, it's, treat, it's treating a political problem as though it's a technical bureaucratic problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, let me go back to uh, the world of work again, um, and this is a particularly interesting case. And I actually think, funnily enough, Marxists have something to say about it, and that is that. Uh, why do we work 40 hours a week? I mean, part of it has to do with what employers require of us, doesn't it? Um, that's certainly part of it. It's, uh, you know, there are imbalances of power in the labor market. Um, that's been made much worse by the decline of the unions in the last 30 years or so. Um, but yeah, I mean, most people, even if they wanted to work less, they just, they, they wouldn't find anyone to take them on for less. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, this is the, this is what I'm getting after. I kind of I'm, I'm old enough that I grew up with a bunch of hippies, and you know we talked about dropping out and taking part time jobs and living in Montana in a hut and all this other stuff. And I don't know what else we were going to do, but opening bookstores, I suppose. But it just isn't very easy to work 15 hours a week and have a decent middle class life. Yeah, um, and um, uh, you know, employers aren't sympathetic to the idea. In fact, I. I mean, many employers they 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 like you to put in extra hours uh, as a, as a sort of sign of your mm-hmm. devotion to the to the company to the brand. Um, um, you know, I mean, a lot of friends of mine you know work overtime, um, uh, unpaid overtime, in fact, just because they you know they're 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 worried that unless they you know show that hundred and ten percent commitment, they're going to lose their jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember hearing a Buddhist talk about this. And uh, he said that uh, you can kind of think of capitalism as we currently have it configured. You know, in many ways, it's very good. It has provided us with a lot of stuff. But it's a competitive game in which you will always lose. You can never win it. And um, so he said uh, you should opt for other kind of measures of what what he kind of generically called well-being. That You're going to lose this game. You're never going to have the most money. You're never going to be king of the world. You know, the next bobble is not going to make you happy. So you should sort of opt out and choose another and he thought of sort of spiritual fitness or enlightenment or something like this. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, and I quite agree with him. I mean, having lived in competitive capitalism for a long time, I, I am losing. <laughs> and I think I will lose. And eventually I'll die. So I'll definitely lose that one. So, I mean, it seems to me it sort of, it suggests thinking about our world in this way suggests a kind of stoicism, doesn't it? To harken back to some ancient philosophers. Yeah, I mean, we we draw our inspiration not not so much from the Stoics, um, more from Aristotle, also the Epicureans, um, who um, uh, had a, had a nice philosophy. I think. I mean, they they um, they said that um, you know pleasure really um, is achieved not so much by 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 realizing or your many desires, but by reducing your desires to a minimum. Um, uh, and and that makes it easier to satisfy mm-hmm. the few desires that you have left. Um, whereas the tendency of capitalism is exactly the opposite: is to endlessly expand our desires. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you satisfy one lot, and then a whole new lot suddenly grow up, like you know, like the heads of the hydra, um, and then you have to satisfy them, and so on. Um, so yeah, as you say, you're you're always going to lose. Um, so what we're really advocating is a sort of reduction of desire. Um, or at least material desires, maybe not other kinds of desires. Yeah, and I think this is what the Buddhists, obviously there are lots of kinds of Buddhists, but this is what this particular Buddhist would say. And, you know, they begin by saying that, you know, you're, you're suffering, and the reason you're suffering is because you desire things, and these things can never satisfy you. And then they have another program that, you know, you might be able to get satisfied with, but it doesn't involve the acquisition of uh, a new Mercedes-Benz and all that in, is entailed mm. there. It doesn't involve really a lot of worldly activity at all outside helping people. Um, but again, it, it seems to me that we would have to socialize our children in just an entirely different way. And one of the things that, I mean, I'll just make an observation, that it seems to me the less religious we become, the more materialistic we become. I know that's very simplistic, but if you're not going to play the game of religion where you try to you know, reach heaven or reach spiritual enlightenment, you're going to play any game that's available. And the game that's available is competitive capitalism. 
yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, I mean, you know, one of the central messages of, of Christianity was, um, you know, love of money is the root of all evil. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, the, you know, the sins of avarice, usury, greed, I mean, these were endlessly en- emphasized by, by, you know, early Christian and medieval theologians, um, much more, in fact, than, you know, the sexual vices. Uh, um, now, I think, I mean, religion has uh, become a much weaker force in our society, or or it's become infected by the spirit of capitalism, um, particularly in America, I think. Um, you know, Christians aren't very heavy on greed or avarice anymore. No, um, not really, no. They're, they're, they're much heavier on, on, on sex outside marriage. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's become the main focus of Christian morality, which is a big mistake. I mean, it's... Um, uh, I mean, I mean, G- Jesus said hardly anything about sex. He, he said an awful lot about money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you... you uh, talk a lot in the book about, and you propose uh, sort of conditions that might make living the good life possible. Let's first talk about the conditions, and let's talk about what the good life might be. So, what are the conditions that are necessary in order to live the good life? Well, um, if we're speaking about material conditions, um, I mean, we need a certain level of wealth. I, I, you know, I don't think it's possible to live a good life in conditions of absolute poverty. So. You need um, you need enough money to um, buy yourself you know a, a, you know food enough food to live and enough medicine um, to to lead a reasonable span of life um, uh, to 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 live in a house or flat which um, gives you some privacy um, uh, to have a bit of leisure so you're not you're not working. Um, all day, um, you have time to, to, to rest, to, to, to enjoy leisure activities, um, uh, friendship. Um, yeah, um, so yeah. I mean, mon- money is, is certainly an essential prerequisite, um, but it's nothing more than that. Um, m- money won't get you a good life uh, itself. It's, it's, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seems to me you also need and this is precisely what we're lacking, is a kind of attitude or pitch toward life that says enough is enough. Yeah, yeah. And, and you cannot, and it seems to me, except for a very few people, and actually I know some of them, <laughs> they're monks, <laughs> it's just not available to most people. Uh, yeah, it's... it's um... if, you, if you look, for example, what people teach in philosophy departments, it certainly isn't how to live the good life. That's that's true. Uh, I, I I try with my students. Yeah, um, sure, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it it depends. I mean, I think it, de- it depends what sort of sector you're looking at. Um, uh, I think among among academics, money is probably not the most important uh, thing. But then there are other forms of insatiability. Um, yeah, that would be status. Is, is status, a number of yeah. publications. Right. I mean, you know, these other things have the same kind of function as money. So um, yeah, I mean, you know, we're all kind of um, uh, kind of. On, on one treadmill or another. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you, it's, it's hard to resist that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's say, it's let's say the, resilience. Yeah, well, let's say then you have these things that um, at a bare minimum enable you to live the good life. What, what does the good life entail and how do you know whether you're living it? Well, we, we, we um, I mean, we talk about uh, basic goods. Uh, I mean, you know, the number seven doesn't need to be taken that seriously. Uh, you know, other people have come up with slightly more, slightly less. Um, um, but uh, you know, we, we 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 call the seven basic goods: health, respect, personality, security, harmony with nature, friendship, and leisure. Um, and how did we come up with these? Well, we you know we we, we thought about um, you know what the good life requires. We we read uh, widely um, thinkers, not just in the West, but um, in China and India too. And and you know we found there is quite a lot of overlap between what these people have said. Um, there is a kind of consensus on this. Um, um, so the seven basic goods are our effort to, to summarize this consensus. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have them, are you living the good life? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a threshold. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, this is a minimum. Obviously, you know, people, you know, will pursue, uh, more specific goals, um, uh, you know, uh, 
don't know, intellectual excellence, mm -hmm. uh, becoming very good at a musical instrument. Uh, you know, these may be important to individuals, but the, the seven basic goods are just a sort of basic minimum mm -hmm. that anyone needs in order to lead a good life. Right, right. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I quite agree with what you say there, that this is a condition which is necessary for you to go forward and live the good life. It's just what the thing I'm, I guess I'm not understanding is once you have those things, what do you do? Um, well, I mean, they're, they're not things that, um, you, you know, you, you, you just have and then sit on. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're things that require maintenance. Mm -hmm. So our friendship, for instance, um, uh, you know, you have to maintain friendships and that, that requires activity. Mm -hmm. um, uh, leisure, I mean, you know, you have to, you have to fill your leisure with, with activity. I mean, leisure is our name for a form of activity. Um, it's not just time off work. Yes, it's, I see. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's doing things for its own sake. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 not, it's not a passive ideal. It's an active one. Mm -hmm. So you'd go to the gym, you know, try to stay you fit. You would, you, know, you, would, you would work a certain amount so you had a certain amount to eat. You would maintain your friendships and these kinds yeah. of things. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, see, I see just what you mean. So I, I guess w one thing that occurs to me is that, and, and you mentioned this in the book as a kind of matter of, of um, uh, what is it called, evolutionary psychology, that humans mm -hmm. seem to be really competitive. They are just naturally so, and that they seem to be acquisitive, and that they are naturally so. Perhaps not as much as they are in contemporary capitalism, but they will mm -hmm. tend to want more, and they will tend to compete with their fellows outside yeah. any any in, in any given social system. It seems to me that some element of it has to be a program or practice that that dampens that down, that somehow suppresses those things, or you will find yourself careening toward what is essentially capitalism again. Yeah, I, I think, and the competitive instinct is is, is innate. I think um, it takes various different forms in different societies. Um, uh, you know, in some societies, people compete over um, I don't know hunting trophies or women. Or um, you know, in the modern West, we 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 we, we compete over money mainly. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it is malleable. It's it, you know, it shouldn't be treated just as a biological given it's something we can moderate um or redirect in, in various ways that we consider beneficial mm -hmm. um so um you know we, we, we'd like to see a more equal society in which you know there's um some inequality of income but much less than we have now um so you'll still have competition but the competition would just not be as fierce mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so this would be kind of a, 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 a capitalism turned down from 11 to 4 yeah. yeah, so to speak. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, I see. I see. Which is, which is what you have in a lot of uh, you know European countries. Yeah, I see just what you mean. Um, again, I, I find myself thinking about religion because the people who I know who have successfully done this, who have taken themselves out of this rat race, so to say, called a rat race, have all been people who uh, are searching for some kind of spiritual fitness. That they have been the most successful at at realizing the kind of thing that you're you're talking about yet what what role does religion play in in exits from the rat race uh well yeah we we think it's um important um as a as a source of individual inspiration but we're I mean, our book is not it's not really a, a self-help book for individuals it's um it's really a um a book about politics mm -hmm. so we think the exit from the rat race has to be um brought about at a, at a political level um and there's you know, there's only so much individuals can do on their own um, uh, to change society. Uh, I mean, yeah, for the last hundred years or so, we've had sort of dropouts, groups of hippies, utopians, right. um, but but they've all been marginal. Um, they they haven't changed the fabric of society as a whole. To to do that, we 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 need to um, actually change the law. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why we end the book with some political proposals. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about those. What 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 laws should be changed? make you king of the world and <laughs> what do you do well i think i mean one of one of the easiest things you could do is is, is um you know put various restrictions on advertising um and in fact there are already restrictions on advertising in most countries um, on particular products so it'd just be a question of extending them um and um and, and maybe prohibiting advertising in various places um i mean michael sandell um has written a very good book um what money can't buy, in which he talks about the encroachment of advertising into schools, hospitals, even police stations, sporting events. Um, so you're, you know, you're literally um, bombarded with adverts wherever you look. 
um, you know, that, that, that process could be halted um, mm-hmm. just by making it illegal to, to put up adverts everywhere. So I mean, that's one thing you could easily do. Um, Can we stop there for just one second? Because that mm-hmm. reminds me of reading Plato, of all people, Plato. Because Plato says that actually, um, you know, the things that you hear and see and especially read can hurt you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we don't believe I, that I, today, do we? I mean, most people, it's in the Constitution of the United States. We say, you know, freedom of speech. I mean, immediately someone would say, we can't ban advertising there because that would be a violation of freedom of speech. Besides, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words can never hurt you. I mean, I think well, that's false. But, yeah, I, I think it's definitely false. <laughs> I think it's totally false, but uh, <laughs> you have to reach a certain stage of enlightenment and understanding yeah. in order to get to the stage where you can say, well, actually, the things you do read and see and do, they, they hurt you. They can hurt you. Yeah, and anyway, I mean, until I think was it the 1960s, America had very strict, uh, you know, laws on pornography. Um, you know, defined as matter tending to deprave and corrupt. I think right. it was. So, uh-huh. um, yeah, that that clearly wasn't considered unconstitutional. So, um, you know, I, I think it could be done. Um, uh, um, yeah, a lot of advertising tends to deprave and corrupt. Um, yeah, it just so, seems to me. I guess this to me is a matter of practical politics that every t- almost every time someone has come up against uh, freedom of speech in the United States, at least they've lost uh, every. And that's how we got and, and pornography is an interesting case because um, it would seem to me there are pretty good reasons to limit pornography, but they've just been completely cast aside now. There's nothing outside kitty porn. Everything goes. Yeah, and it does that by the smartest people in the United States, the people who know the law the best. They decided that. So, I mean, the weight of opinion is, in fact, quite against Plato, <laughs> that it is sticks and stones. Yeah. Um, well, I, th- I think, um, and the problem is once, you know, it, I mean, it's not as if you can look away, um, uh, particularly advertising on TV. I mean, if it, if it breaks up a TV program, uh, you have to watch it. Yeah, um, actually, Plato talks about that, too, I remember. He sees has somebody go by this public execution. And I remember yeah. exactly what I was doing. And he, can't, he, he has to look. And then he's really upset with yeah, himself, yeah, right? You remember this? Like, he's, yes, he's tempted. His, his, uh, yeah, yeah I, th- I think that's the thing. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're weak. Um, and, and we actually need to be protected from ourselves sometimes. And we want to be protected from ourselves. Um, uh, that, you know, that's one of the functions of law. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we, are, um, we are openly paternalist on this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, we, we don't think that um, people's wants should uh, be allowed free expression. We think we think they should be molded and constrained by some right. notion of good. Right. I mean, I quite agree with you. I just think that in the contemporary American climate that it's impossible. But maybe yes. in the European, it's impossible in the United States. It'd be just no way. So anyway, what's something else other than limiting advertising that we could do? Well, we have various for- other uh, proposals. Um, one of them is um, for a a uh, minimum uh, basic income, an unconditional basic income. So this would be an income paid to all citizens uh, over the age of 18, regardless of uh, whether they're in work or out of work or, or anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it would probably be quite small at first, but then rising over time as societies become richer. Um, and the idea would just be to, to give people some, some flexibility over their, their, their hours and conditions of work. Um, to make it a bit easier for them to work part time if they wanted, or or in a you know more fulfilling but less well paid job. Mm-hmm. And where would this money come from? From taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, I've uh, some economists have, have worked it out, and they say it wouldn't actually be impossible in, in wealthy societies. Yeah, I've read uh, this as well. Yeah, I, I, I'm not an economist, so I, right. I can't comment on that. But but my father um, uh, has assured me that it, it, it would be possible. In fact. Something like this was um, actually started in, in the UK um, by the last government, a so-called baby bond scheme. Mm-hmm. So this, would, this was a, a lump sum that would be you know, um, invested at birth. And, mm-hmm. you know, by the age of 18, it would be a few thousand pounds. Um, right. uh, yeah, so it was just a start. It could have been built on, but it, it was scrapped by the current government. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So baby bonds and anything yeah. else? So uh, no advertise or advertising limitations to advertising. Some baby bonds, which is a real—that's a good term for it. <laughs> anything else? Um, yes, another another proposal is is for a tax on on um, consumption rather than on incomes. So 
you know, rather than taxing people on how much money they've earned in the year, you'd tax them on how much they'd spent. So you'd subtract savings from earnings. Um, uh, and this would be progressive. So, you know, um, it would really sort of kick in, you know, uh, you know, once you're spending over, I, I don't know, sixty, eighty thousand dollars a year. Um, isn't, isn't that what the VAT is? is it no, exemption tax. Maybe I'm confused. No, this. I mean, VAT, VAT is a tax on transactions, whereas okay. this would be a tax on individuals. Um, okay. So, so you'd pay like a, like an income tax yeah. you know, at the end of your tax year. Um, um, but it, it would it would only um, uh, it would only be a tax on what you'd spent, not on not on what you'd saved. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would be progressive, unlike VAT. Uh, and so, yeah, and the idea would be to well, two 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 um, effects. One would it, it would deter luxury consumption, um, and the other is it would encourage saving for old age. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, in discouraging luxury consumption, it would have knock-on effects all, all the way down the chain um, because a lot of consumption is is emulative. You know, people are trying to. You know, keep up with those a little bit richer than themselves. Um, so uh, it, it should have a depressing effect of, on consumption all the way down. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the economist uh, Robert Frank has, has written quite a bit on this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll draw on him. Mm-hmm. So others, other other other, other uh, schemes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I. Uh, what else do we say? Um, well, that's plenty for now. That's a yeah, lot. I, that's, I, that's I think a heck I, of a lot. I mean, these are just these are just ideas. I mean, mm-hmm. we're not, um, you know, we're not sort of writing a party manifesto. Um, uh, we're, we're just sort of throwing some ideas into the arena. Um, but I mean, the main, you know, the main thing is that governments have to decide that, you know, this is something they want to tackle, um, and that they have the the power and the right to do so. Right. But uh, I guess one one thing that occurs to me is since these governments are democratic. The first thing to do would be to convince people sure, that, sure. in fact, uh, they need to return. And here I'll put words in your mouth, but uh, I just want to be interested to hear what you say about to return to uh, a life that's measured by virtue rather than measured by income. Yeah, I mean the, these are you know we're, we're just putting ideas into the into the public sphere, and um, you know hopefully enough people will find them attractive that they'll um, uh, you know try and translate them into policy. Yeah. Um, yeah, these these are proposed in a democratic spirit. You know, we're not um, kind of speaking to some uh, you know technocratic elite here. We're right, right. Well, I mean, it seems to me that the place where this is again, I hate to keep going back to religion, but the place where this is actually discussed, at least in my experience, is in fact in in religious contexts, where where somebody will say, somebody who's a leader in a community will say, uh, you know. Uh, you aren't actually living like Christ because Christ said X, Y, and Z, and you're doing A, B, and C. And it, it, you know, Christ suggests a kind of life of virtue, and the virtues are measured in this way. Um, and I don't see any politician speaking that language at all. I mean, I, I just don't see any politician doing it, but I do see spiritual leaders doing it. Yeah, although I, I mean, my impression is that um, you know many of the churches in America are, are um, uh, fully supportive of of, of you know free market capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, they see that as a uniquely Christian way of life and they see state interference as uh, socialist and therefore unchristian. Um, mm-hmm. am, am I right there? Um, well, I have a personal that, that's theory. That's my impression. Yeah, but, I, I uh, a, yeah, I have a theory about this that will be completely uh, unpopular among almost everybody and that is that uh, this attitude is a result of the doctrine of religious toleration. Um, and basically what the state says when it tolerates every religion is that all religions are the same and they don't really matter. And Americans caught on to that pretty fast, that religion just wasn't very important in their lives. And so that game was taken away, and they started to play another game, and that's the game of acquisitiveness. Um, there are isolated communities of people that take their spiritual lives um, very seriously. Uh, I've seen them, um, but my, I, my own feeling is, is that most religion in America and in the West is... Um, has been adapted to capitalism rather than the other way around. And that is yeah. be- that is because the most important people in these states said, religion just doesn't matter very much. Pick whatever one you want. Yeah. They're yeah. just all the same. <laughs> you know, become a Wiccan. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, you may be an Orthodox Jew. It doesn't matter. Be a Protestant. It doesn't matter. Um, but it does matter. And, yeah. uh, uh, and people don't realize that anymore. So, you know, the, the, and again, I'm 
it's only my opinion, that you go to American churches today and they do talk about virtue and things like this, but the doctrine is really be nice. Yeah. That's what they yeah. learn, but be nice. What's happened is I mean, religion's been confined to the private sphere. Yeah. Um, and this really started to happen in the, I guess, the late 17th, 18th century. Um, mm-hmm. Because before then, religion claimed to regulate the whole of life. Yeah, so that's right. What, what, what you did in, in work, in politics, as well as what you did at home. And, and, um, and then what happened? I mean, we, we discussed this in the book. Um, economics was liberated from, from religion. Um, that's right. Um, because people realized that actually if you, you know, give people a license to, to, to make money, um, you know, provided they don't break the law, the effects will be, you know, um, beneficial all around. Um, so, so, so economics was sort of liberated from from the religious embrace, if you like, and religion was really left with sex and the family. Yeah, um, and that's where it stayed pretty much ever since. In fact, now even sex and the family are sort of, uh, are seen as, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, sort of have been liberated from religion. So, yeah, um, I mean, they're being assimilated to this most general doctrine that you get to pursue happiness on your own and nobody gets to tell you what to do. Yeah. And that your decisions will be the best ones for you. And I think it's the last part that is completely false. Because I quite agree with you. People do not often know what is good for them. I ask a drug addict. <laughs> they, yeah. they know after they've come clean, or at least they start to learn, that they know that their decisions have been bad ones and that they could have used regulation and they didn't have it. Uh, so they ended up in a very bad, um, in a very bad situation. So I'm not. Again, I do know uh, people that take their uh, religious lives very seriously. That they have you know, sort of spiritual programs they live by. They're very few. Uh, mostly, they just go to church on Sunday, or they don't go at all. And most Americans don't go to church at all. So, well, they go much more than Europeans. Yeah, well, they say actually it's funny because the statistics are interesting. There, I just was doing some research on that. Forty percent of them say they go. Uh, every week to church. 40% of Americans say they go every week. But then actually when you count people in the pews, it's 20%. So what that suggests is that people feel guilty about not going to church. (laughs) (laughs) That's the most you can say about that. And I mean, the fact of the matter is they're not getting anything out of it. And that's really the problem is that, uh, you know, this brings me back to philosophy departments. Um, I love philosophy. I did analytic philosophy as an undergraduate and I still read it. And, um, but it just strikes me that the things that should be thought in philosophy departments really should all ask one question. Why are we living the way we're living? And, and nobody yeah. asks that question anymore. Maybe you yeah. do in your classes. Well, I think philosophers are, you know, they're worried about um, being seen as preachers, you know, um, uh, or as having some special wisdom to offer. Um, uh, you know, that, that seems somehow, you know, not very academically respectable. Um, right. But, but yeah. analytic philosophy is not the examined life. It's an examination yeah. of, of language. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's the analysis of concepts. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, but that, I mean, the way, the way I try to teach philosophy, um, or moral philosophy at any rate, it, um, yeah, it does, you know, treat the question of how best to live as central. Uh, I think that is the central question in, in moral philosophy. Mm-hmm. So would you encourage, I was going to say, say, say you had this great student that really understood everything you were saying and understood the quixotic nature of the pursuit of things and that things would make you happy and realized that, that they were making lots of decisions that were um, sort of spiritually bankrupting them and that they weren't acting in a virtuous way and said, uh, would, would you suggest to such a person that they should drop out? Of life, sort of. Just like, live as a, I don't know how they would live, but you know. It's well, it's, it's it's hard in a in a modern university. You you have hundreds of students every year, so it's um, you know, you're giving big lectures or classes, so it's you know, you you don't often get to form that kind of personal relationship with your students. Um, um but um, uh. I mean, the only reason I mention this is that I again, I as I, I think I said in the pre-interview, I, I'm sort of at a stage in my own life when. I have competed and I've sometimes I've won and sometimes I've lost and sometimes it's been satisfying and sometimes not. And I'm, I'm more and more disenchanted with the game itself. And I sort of want to remove myself, but I, I, it's very hard to remove yourself. Everybody's expectations is that you will continue. And if you don't continue, people think you're insane. Mm. <laughs> you know, they just think you're nuts. You know, yeah. because everybody's in the game, and so they don't realize they're in the game, because the game is every, the yeah. game has been naturalized. If you see what I mean, in a technical yeah. sense, it's like 
This is the way life is. There is no other way. A lot of Americans will say that. Um, yeah. Well, I, I think you just have to have a lot of um, self-confidence and, um, uh, yeah, and just and conviction, I suppose, um, that this is how you want to live and you're not going to be bullied into living any other way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, but that, that's, that's very hard. Yeah, um, I mean, the thing in my own life, I can say that, and, and by my observations, that the, the, the really difficult thing is, I mean, the, the actual heavy lifting is not the realization that things won't buy you happiness. Pretty much everyone knows that. It's finding a way to explain that to people in a compelling way. And I've never found a way to do that. Yes. Well, that, that is, I think that is the function of religion. That's, that, that's, that's, that's what good preaching is about. Right. Um, I, I don't think I've got the, the literary gifts for that, but no, and I don't think people are prepared to hear it. And I think what, you know, I, again, I'd be interested to hear from people who, I, I do know people who are religious, like I say, and take their spiritual lives very interesting. And I think they would read your book and say, yeah, this is exactly right. Uh, and, and that it is, I, I know what Buddhists would say. They'd say it is hopeless to try to change society. It's just hopeless. And the most you can possibly do is change yourself. Yes. Yeah. Well, yes, I'm, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I know that's the Buddhist view, but I, <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit more, um, engaged than that, I think. Yeah, um, no, I can, and also um, Buddhism, Buddhism thoroughly practices really hard. <laughs> I'm not a Buddhist, but I know people that are, it's really hard. <laughs> So I can certainly understand why, um, you know, it, work, it works for some people, but it takes a special kind of person to do it. Um, so, uh, so how how has your book been received? I'd be interested to know interested to know that. Um, well, it's it's done well. Um, it's it's um, I mean, it's widely reviewed in England, um, mostly favorably, particularly in the left wing press. Um, some hostile reviews from the right wing press. In America, my sense is. Uh, it's sold okay, but um, a lot of Americans have said, look, this is just utopian. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, we, we can never put these ideas into practice, mm-hmm. um, right. as, as in fact you said. Um, yeah. In Germany, it's, it's, um, it's just come out and, and is doing extremely well. Um, it's had very good publicity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's selling very well. Um, I think the Germans like that, um, combination of philosophy and economics um mm-hmm. uh you know is the land of marx after all so right, right. um so so I, I think it's done best in germany yeah, of all the places it's come out yeah that's interesting i you know again i'll give it to people i i think i know what they'll say about it and they'll say just what you said that it's some sort of utopian something and again but part of that has to do with actually the legacy of the cold war where americans fought something that they thought was utopian and yeah. You know, tooth and nail, and actually it turned out to be uh, the thing that they fought, which wasn't really communism, it was the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, or uh, maybe it was, I don't know. But uh, th- this this sort of, I guess I would call it knee-jerk reaction to proposals such as this, I, I think but comes people, from people, people forget just how quickly the consensus about what's possible and what's impossible can change. Because a lot of what we're proposing is is actually what existed in the yeah. 1950s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And was dismantled in the eighties and nineties. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that extremist, really, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not communism either. That, that's a mistake. Many uh, yeah, no, it's say. not. Communi- uh, this is, this not is communism. We're not opposed to private property. On the contrary, we think private property is is absolutely crucial to liberty. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we've taken up really a lot of your time. I want to ask our uh, final question, which is: uh, What are you working on now, Edward? I'm um, well. I'm, I'm I've just written an essay on happiness and pleasure, um, developing some of the ideas from how much is enough. This is a this is an academic essay. Mm-hmm. Um, my my longer term hope is to write a book on the language of the virtues, um, looking at how some you know key words like avarice, justice, charity, uh, chastity have have either dropped out of use or have changed their meaning in the last 300 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking at, looking at our modern moral language, that's my, that's my hope. I, I need to get some funding to do it then. Yeah. Well, uh, Edward, good luck on those books. We've been talking with Edward Skidelsky today, who co-authored a book with his father, Robert Skidelsky. Uh, the book is called how much is enough money and the good life. I'm Marshall Poe, the 
editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I want to thank everybody for listening, and I especially want to thank Edward for being on the show today. Thank you, Marshall. All right, thanks very much.